Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Last weekend, the moment everyone in the United States Football League was waiting for. George Allen returned to the nation's capital and returned to the football field. Not just any football field, but RFK Stadium. Don't believe that banner. He's 42-10-1 there. It was an emotional uh, experience for me because I, I wasn't just a Redskin coach. I had my heart and soul in the organization and the city. And I became uh, emotional a couple of times today on the sidelines playing the national anthem. And, and, uh, but I'm very proud of my team and uh, the staff and the organization. We played like pros. We didn't make uh, many mistakes. And we beat a good football team. This league is for real. Uh, the Chicago Blitz is for real. And the league is going to go and be successful and expand. And there'll be expansion after that. Uh, anyone that doesn't uh, think that has uh, ulterior motive. Uh, America, this league is good for America, and uh, football is is uh, is a sport that is made for television. I may have changed because I uh, I'm not uh, in this new league. I can't let uh, little things bother me. I used to uh, have this the expression that no detail is too small. And uh, I still believe that. But uh, the other day we went to practice with 50 players and coaches and everything. We didn't have any footballs, you see. So that would have bothered me. But I thought, well, that's that's every day there's some little thing like that that happens. And uh, and I know until we get better organized, we just roll with the punches. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello again, friends. It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. It is Good Seats, still available, the Curious Little Podcast, which, of course, as you know by now, is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. We appreciate it greatly, and hopefully you will find this week's episode worth the time uh, and uh, your earbuds attention. It is uh, George Allen. A Football Life. That's the name of the book by our guest this week, Mike Richman. And if you don't know who George Allen is, well, shame on you. He's uh, clearly one of the most intriguing football coaches in NFL history. Uh, and intriguing is both in a positive and a not-so-positive light. Uh, a very curious figure, this George Allen. Um, and you heard him there on that clip as the Wayback Machine took us to, uh, I guess it's the late uh, late winter, early spring of 1983, ESPN being the place where you heard or saw that that little featurette. And that's George Allen and the Chicago Blitz. Remember them of the USFL returning for the first time to Washington, D.C. to play the Federals. Remember them. Uh, and uh, a return to RFK Stadium where uh, during the bulk of the 1970s, George Allen was patrolling the sidelines of the Washington Redskins, the team now known as the Washington Commanders for various reasons, also explored on this show in previous episodes. So you can look that up. Uh, but the Over the Hill Gang and, and John Riggins and all these kinds of uh, stories about uh, that team in the 1970s 
Uh, and in his first year there, 1971, winning the coach of the year in the NFL, George Allen did. Uh, but uh, a, a kind of a, a hint at sort of the um, the dichotomy, I guess, of the man, George Allen. Uh, not only a, a brilliant football mind, but a perfectionist, often to a fault sometimes, as to why his belief in, uh, like I said, the over-the-hill gang uh, was sort of the um, uh, not always uh, a, a, a positive sort of um, uh, appellation for uh, a team comprised of, of arguably aging veterans. But he liked veterans, George Allen did, because he felt they brought – uh, expertise and experience uh, into into the mix where perhaps younger players uh, may have not uh, been as uh, grizzled and uh, uh, and focused, shall we say. But this is a story not just of his time in Washington in the NFL, but uh, the L.A. Rams uh, play a, a significant role in the story of George Allen uh, on a number of different occasions. Uh, in the beginnings of his pro career coming out of college in 1957, uh, before he went off to uh, work under the tutelage and sometimes, frankly, under the thumb uh, of George Hallis, Papa Bear, the uh, uh, long-standing um, uh, uh, figure behind and, and at and with the Chicago Bears franchise, um, uh, Allen uh, uh, was, you know, a, a player personnel guy, an assistant coach, uh, a defensive coordinator, player personnel stuff. Uh, during the late 1950s, early 1960s at the Bears. But he went back to the Rams as a head coach uh, in 1966 and uh, then left for the Redskins uh, in 1970 and then went back to the Rams again in 1978 for a brief-er cup of coffee. And we'll get into that conversation, that situation in our conversation. Uh, the, it was a preseason-only ex- uh, uh time there and and we get into the reasons why but all of that obviously a prelude to uh his time with the blitz and then the Arizona Wranglers and there's a story there too if you're a USFL fan from the original days as to why the blitz and the wranglers are important for and with each other but George Allen was part of all of that um but there's so many different little quirks and and idiosyncrasies uh with this man and we get into those things. And frankly, a bunch of them uh, becoming reasons for perhaps why he left so abruptly in various situations, such as the Bears going to the Rams and the Redskins going to the Rams again, and the Rams leaving uh, in 1978 and not coaching again until 1983 when the USFL came calling. Lots of interesting uh, issues with this man, George Allen, uh, our topic uh, of conversation this week with our guest, Mike Richmond, he the author of George Allen, A Football Life, which is available now wherever fine books are found. Of course, if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, all you need to do is uh, search up this episode number 324, and you will find a convenient link to the book uh, to uh, Amazon, where you can get both uh, the hardcover or the Kindle version. Uh, about as quickly as you can find uh, anywhere on this planet. And we, of course, get a couple of referral uh, dimes and nickels of love uh, when you do so. We appreciate that very much. Uh, It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. You've heard us uh, rave about them in the past with lots of different books and topics and stuff in previous episodes, and we appreciate their 
helping helping us put this uh, episode again together this week. And uh, let's not waste any more time. Okay, shall we? No, of course not. Let's get right into it. Uh, this is uh, a deep, thorough, and thorough and uh, amazingly intriguing conversation about this uh, life of a man named George Allen, a football life that is. Please, as always, enjoy. Let me just start by asking where and how do you uh, come into this story of of George Allen? Uh, why the interest? Why the uh, the in-depth pursuit? Uh, and uh, maybe tell us how it sort of comes about in the in the production process. Sure, Tim. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, very happy to be here and tell the story of, of George Allen and, and why I embarked on writing a uh, biography on him. Uh, first, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and I first became attached to the Washington Redskins, I'd say in a, in a really true, true, very, very uh, close way in 1971 when he came here to coach the Redskins. And I was 10 years old at the time, and I became a just a diehard Redskins fan, starting with that season. I would just live and die by how well the team did uh, on a given Sunday. And uh, he coached the Redskins through 1977, took them through a very, very successful period, uh, five playoff appearances, and he took them to their first Super Bowl appearance in 1972, Super Bowl Seven, which they did not win. They lost to the undefeated Miami Dolphins that year. But through that whole period, I became a really a, you know, staunch Redskins fan, and I got to know – you know, George Allen as the the Redskins coach and uh, uh, some of his players, uh, many of his players, I should say, I uh, I looked up to and I could, you know, come, uh, put the number with the name. I had no trouble doing that with a lot of his players. So that's how I got started in all of this. Um, and I chose I chose journalism as, as a career. And then when the time came, when I really wanted to embark on writing some books, I uh, picked an encyclopedia on the Washington Redskins. And that was published in 2007. That was my first of four books. Uh, then I had the Washington Redskins Football Vault, a memorabilia-based book. And then I had Joe Gibson Enduring Legacy, which was published by his foundation, Youth for Tomorrow. And my most recent book, uh, which is about to hit the shelves, is uh, George Allen, A Football Life. So th this so, that origin that origin story is not uh, uh, that unique that we have found over the last number of years, uh, and I'm I'm uh, part of that sort of uh, that dynamic, and that's sort of an impressionable youth uh, period of time, uh, loosely defined as you know uh, uh, pre adolescence, uh, maybe in through the teenage years, uh, often but not exclusively uh, male. Um, and uh, some kind of uh, a brush with something in the realm of sports, whether it be in a participation manner or a fandom manner or some fusion of the two. Uh, and that sort of impression leaves kind of a, a, a lasting impact uh, in some way, shape or form. For me, uh, it was just a, you know, a, a bit north of you in the New York metropolitan area, uh, growing up as a New York Cosmos, North American Soccer League fan. Uh, and and by the way, coming to RFK Stadium on numerous occasions to see the Cosmos play the Washington Diplomats, including a 
very memorable 1980 uh, soccer bowl uh, there against the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. But I digress. Um, but that was was Pele on that Cosmos team? No, well, now he he left after the '77 season, so no, this was uh, still after that. Okay. But the Diplomats were obviously quite a, uh, a memorable team, semi successful depending on the year and the games that they were playing in a couple of different iterations. Um, but uh, the point is that uh, you're not alone in having sort of a uh, a memorable environment uh, growing up and having that sort of sports experience for you being that 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 football team there at rfk right. um having some kind of uh you know a, a trajectory uh, uh interjection if you will into your i guess it sounds like a career but also a long-lasting interest uh in the team and, yes, and the story well absolutely and and there were a few other elements that went into it uh, one is i became immersed in in history i my mother took me to so many of the museums in the Washington area. And I, I want to say I went to, I did not go to everyone, but I, I be, gained a love for history at the same time. So while my father got me acclimated to sports, both watching and playing, I mean, I back in those days, we would just uh, go to the schoolyard and get lost for, for the day. And, you know, nobody really had to worry about us and just play sports the whole day. So, you know, I was uh, an avid uh uh, recreational athlete and I actually I think I had an inkling at that at that time that writing was going to be something that I was going to embark on in the future because in the sixth grade we had a class project and it turned into a, a little bound uh, booklet which I still have uh, and I wrote a story called uh, the amateur who played like a pro and it was about a star football player at Ohio State who ended up playing in the Rose Bowl against USC. And as you probably know, back in those days, that was a, a a common, that was a rivalry then. It was either Ohio State, Michigan, USC, UCLA, and they would play, you know, Big Ten would play the Pac-10 or Pac-8 or whatever it was back then. So, but that was a, um, a, a common rivalry. And so I wrote that book in the sixth grade. And so I just, it was the thoughts were going through my mind at the time. And then you know, I wrote for my high school newspaper and my college newspaper. And one thing led to another. And yeah, like you say, it was, uh, you could, you could say it was a trajectory, a trajectory that uh, I, I pretty much had, had set the course for in my youth. All right. So why, why George Allen in particular then, because you know, that Redskins franchise and obviously we're using that term, you know, uh, loosely, I guess now, obviously, the ch it's it's gone through a change. It's now the commanders, even the new ownership, all that kind of stuff. But obviously, this was what the team was known as then. So, uh, you know, send your emails elsewhere. Uh, very uh, aware of the sensitivities of it. But but why, why is, you know, Allen was was a coach of this team um, for you know a good six or seven seasons during the uh, during a bulk of the nineteen seventies, but. Lord knows he had many other coaching stops along the way. What was why the fixation, I guess, on him per se in right. terms of uh, of doing this as a writing project versus arguably some of the very other colorful stories that could have emanated out of this team? Sure. Well, number one, going back to what I said about you know being you know having such strong ties to to that Redskin team. So as I was doing more of these literary projects, uh, I 
told myself, I've got to write a biography on George Allen. He is so deserving of it. And by then he had, he had been inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which happened in 2002. And I, I just told him I was the guy to do it. I mean, I had to had to write a book on George Allen. And and sure enough, I, I, I signed the original um, contract with my publisher in 2013. So I, that's when it, that's when the project itself first started. Uh, I didn't really dive into the writing of it a few years until a few years later. I had so many other things that were consuming my time. But uh, so but I, I felt that I was the person to do it. And I I wrote the the definitive biography on George Allen. He was the coach. He was one of the greatest coaches in the NFL during that period. Uh, his rivals were Don Shula and Vince Lombardi. It went it went uh, in this order. In, in his by the end of his career, went Tom Landry of the Cowboys, Don Shula of both the Colts and Dolphins, but Allen played him more when when he coached the Colts, and then Vince Lombardi was I would say Allen's third greatest rival. Allen that of that era of the NFL, Allen was he was at the top in terms of the most wanted coaches in the NFL when he was fired by the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, for a totally mystifying reason after the 1970 season, he was the most wanted coach in the NFL. I mean, at least four or five teams wanted to hire him at that point. And uh, fortunately for the Redskins, they had already pursued him after the 68 season when he was fired for the first time by the Rams and their, their owner, uh, Dan Reeves, um, who Allen had an antagonistic relationship with, but uh, I can get into that story later. But so the Redskins and Jack and Cook and Edward Bennett Williams, the two uh, main owners, pursued him at that time. And then they they were able to uh, uh, lock him in after the 1970 season. And 1971 is when he started coaching the the Redskins. So I hope that answers your question. He was he, he was one of the greatest coaches of, of that era. And he definitely, in my mind, deserve, his story deserved to be told. Yeah, and you mentioned his Hall of Fame induction that was done posthumously about almost a decade geez, after he he uh, he uh, died. So, um, and clearly, it's it's sort of that uh, that a, a old adage, right? That uh, you know, if you don't see a book about somebody that you or something that you believe needs the treatment, well, guess what? You're probably the one that has to go do it, right? So, um, but yeah. let's 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 uh, maybe pick a couple of interesting sort of entry points here. I mean, you're mentioning. You mentioned the Rams, right? The Rams are a very, uh, and we'll get into the Bears and the, and the Redskins and then and some of the other, the USFL dalliances and stuff in a bit. But I think the Rams are a very interesting point of discussion of when you talk about the life of George Allen, because this is a team that he had multiple, shall we say, affairs with, um, a pretty lengthy stay in the late 60s. But uh, you're mentioning uh, he he hit the Rams radar in 1957. And, and then even after the Redskins came back to the Rams for a brief thing, maybe describe how he got to the Los Angeles Rams the first time in the first place. That was his first real exposure to the pro game after a uh, almost a decade or so of collegiate experience. Correct. That, that's exactly right, Tim. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the 57 Rams. A lot of. A lot of people don't really know about it, and the fact that uh, Allen had a a stint there for one season. But he was he was with with the Rams for one year, nineteen fifty seven. He coached under Sid Gilman, uh, who uh, later became the, uh, the one of the uh, fathers of the NFL passing game. 
but uh, when he when he coached the San Diego Chargers in the AFL. But Allen had coached for uh, close to a decade in the in the college ranks. He first coached at Morningside College in uh, Sioux City, Iowa, and from there he went to uh, Whittier uh, in the Los Angeles area, and he coached uh, coached there for another uh, five years, five six years. So uh, that's how, and, and from there. Uh, he interestingly, and I I wrote, and I think I pinpointed this well enough in the in the narrative of my book, and is that he was kind of forced out as the coach from Whittier after the nineteen fifty six season. Uh, his he, he was having his players kind of disliked his his um, you know three yards in a cloud of dust type of offense, and they didn't really like that that approach of his and. He was also doing a few things here and there that were a little unethical, and the um, uh, the board the board at the school and the um, uh, the boosters they they basically they they kind of pushed him out a little bit. So he was without a job when he was hired by the Rams in 1957. Uh, he knew Sid Gilman because he had attended some of the uh, the Rams uh, summer camps in California. So that's how he came to know Gilman and Allen being Allen. I mean, he would go to those camps. He was allowed to go and he would study what was going on. He was such a detail oriented person uh, throughout his life and coaching career. So, and he, he really showed it at those camps and Gilman really came to admire him. So Gilman hired him in 1957 um, to coach uh, that Rams team. Interestingly, also Allen was hired as an offensive ends coach of that Rams team. He was a defensive oriented coach in, in college, hence the, the three yards and a cloud of dust on offense, but he was hired as, as the offensive ends coach of that, that Rams team. And, uh, and they had, they still had um, uh, crazy legs Hirsch. I think he was in his last season there. And they think, I think they had Waterfield still Bob Waterfield, the quarterback. So they still had some pretty good players left over from, uh, they're really successful years from they went to the uh, NFL championship game in 55 uh, prior to that, that uh, the Rams uh, with Van Brocklin and Waterfield, I believe they won, they won an NFL title in uh, 1951, I think. So, um, but yeah, he was hired as the offensive ends coach. And then he was, he was let go after that season. I mean, there was nothing definitive written in any of the newspapers that said George Allen was fired, but that that's really what you had to, uh, to um, uh, derive from that because, uh, you know, why would a coach leave an NFL team without a job? He had no job lined up after that. So I, 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 maybe it's a bit early to sort of hint at this, but obviously his career, you, you sort of get some of the sense of, of his style, uh, his spirit and his um, cunning, shall we say, uh, uh, later uh, as his career unfolds, but but maybe some hints, perhaps. Uh, well, you're you're sort of hinting, I think, at at maybe some of the reasons why he might have uh, left Whittier. I mean, maybe maybe this is a good time to get into like some of his his tactics and his approaches and stuff because it would it would it would seem to me that some of his uh, style uh, approaches to the game might have been uh, evident before. He came to the Rams for for that that one season, right? Well, in terms of the pattern of um, you know a lack of ethics, I mean that would later really uh, bloom when he when he coached. Well, first he did some 
sort of uh, little slimy things in Los Angeles. There was like he would hi- um, sign a player and then um, uh, try, you know, uh, get information out of him, cut him right away. Uh, but he, he showed that pattern with the Redskins, too. Uh, the other thing he did with the Redskins is he traded uh, the same draft horses for different players. So he was actually fined by the NFL for that. Pete Rozelle fined him for that. So there was an unethical streak to him. Also, uh, he, like I said before, he had a, an antagonistic relationship with Dan Reeves, the the Rams owner. For Some of those reasons that were really silly when, when you look back on it, because Allen was a great, great coach. He His first season in Los Angeles, first of all, he took over a Rams team that was uh, mediocre to bad. Um, in the previous uh, seven seasons, uh, uh, 1965, for instance, I think they were four and 10. They were four and 10 in the 1965 season. And that was only because they made a run toward the end of the year. They won three of the last four games. Um, so he took took over 66. They went eight and six that year. The following year, 1967, in my opinion, that was his greatest season as an NFL coach. That Rams team finished 11, one and two. They lost in the first round of the playoffs to the to the Packers, uh, but the game was played based on the home and home rules that existed back then. First of all, the the, the home team um, based on uh, conference all or I guess it was division then it, it rotated every year. So the pa- the Rams went into that game eleven one and two, Packers nine four and one, but the Packers hosted the playoff game in Green Bay. I'm not saying that's what decided the outcome. Uh, but I also think the, the that Rams team was burned out from, and Allen even said this after, after the season, so did I think Merlin Olson. They were burned out from their last two regular season games. And probably Allen's most dramatic win as a NFL head coach, I, you know, I, I put it up there probably uh, number one or number two. Uh, next last game, they beat the Packers on a blocked punt in the last minute of the game um, and went in to score a touchdown uh, in the last few seconds, which uh, – beat the Packers that day. And that also was that exemplified Allen's focus on special teams, which as, as you probably know, is a major reason that he's in the pro football hall of fame, his emphasis on special teams. He did so much for that aspect of the game. I mean, he really made special teams special. He hired one of the first special teams coaches in Dick Vermeil. Uh, Marv Levy uh, was hired that same year, 1969 with the Eagles for with the Rams in, in uh, 69. So, uh, yeah, Allen did so much for that facet of the game. Um, and then the last regular season game in 67, they beat, beat a, a mighty Colts team, a powerhouse Colts team. And um, that got that Rams squad into the playoffs that year. But I'm going, just going to paint a picture for you about how how much more difficult it was to get into the playoffs back then compared, compared to today with seven teams from each conference going to the playoffs. That Colts team that the Rams beat in the last regular season game in 67 also finished 11-1-2 and and did not go to the playoffs. That's how difficult it was to get into the postseason back then. So, yeah, just to, I mean, if, 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 and and, and, uh, conversely, if Allen coached today, uh, he would be guaranteed a playoff spot every year. And, And, you know, in his coaching career, he went to the playoffs in seven of his 12 coaching season today and get into to the playoffs every year based on on the uh you know seven teams per conference going to the playoffs 
No, I mean, you look at his overall win-loss record in the NFL, just in the NFL. I'm not talking about USFL and, and that kind of stuff, but, you know, or college. I mean, he had a winning percentage of over 700. Uh, you know, uh, the playoff record, I think it was like nine playoff games that, you know, it was like two and seven. But win-loss, it was 116 to 47 with five ties. I mean, that's a pretty dominant uh, approach. And and look, I, I didn't mean to sort of uh, go full negative uh, on you in terms of uh, some of his his tactics and we'll we'll get to some some of those in a couple of minutes but um you know this was a guy even early on in 57 uh 58 you know uh, he was regarded very uh highly especially by George Hallis who hired him for the bears the following season I'll let you get into that in a second um i guess for his you know he this guy was thorough uh, very uh, attention uh, oriented attention to detail oriented uh he was almost methodical i think in terms of his uh, approach to, I'm guessing, tactics and plays and all that kind of stuff on on both sides or all sides of the ball. Oh, absolutely. Methodical is a great way to put it. I mean, he was so detail-oriented. He was a perfectionist. He had to know everything, not only about his own team, he wanted to know everything about the opposing team. As the saying goes, he wanted to know his opponents better than they knew themselves. Uh, he just he wasn't the first 24-7 coach, but he he was a workaholic. Uh, you know, he would sleep in the office. They, you know, here in the D.C. area, we know that Joe Gibbs slept in his office in the 1980s and early 90s when he uh, during the, the glory period. But George Allen did the same thing. I mean, he barely saw his family during the regular season. So um, <laughs> also about George Allen, you know, he would put football up there first before family and God. I mean, I, I, he advertised it. So. Uh, football was first in his life and uh, he was just that was his focus and you know eating wise he would eat food that was very easy to swallow because he didn't want to waste time chewing and that sounds probably ridiculous to a lot of people but that was George Allen the ice that's why his nickname was ice cream it was easy to swallow he would he would pull off the ends of bread as well so he didn't have to chew the the uh, that part of the bread what what was the what what was the sort from what you were able to determine what 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 was the driving force behind that kind of uh, mentality? I think he was a he was a fanatic from this from his youth from his his adolescence teenage years and then into his twenties in terms of wanting to just to he had a type A personality okay he he grew up during the Great Depression so. That's when he first developed his work ethic. And then he really honed that as, as the years went on. Uh, so that's when it all started. Uh, he just, he had that type A personality, that drive, that motivation that you, you need. And there was also this, the creativity in terms of how he, like you used the word cunning before. He certainly had it. And let me give you an example. When he... He When he was at Michigan in graduate school, he was going for a master's in education. So he wanted a job coaching the football team. Okay. And then Michigan football team was really good at the time. They, uh, I believe they won the national championship in 48. But in around 1947, he was um, bidding for a head coaching job. He went to the head coach, whose name escapes me right now. And he said, coach, uh, I, I really, I really want to be on your staff. Can, can you have me on? The coach said, "No, can't have, can't have you uh, on our staff." 
then uh, Allen uh, said he he got another meeting with the with the head coach, and uh, oh, it was Chrysler, uh, Fritz uh, Fritz Chrysler. He went back to him. He said, uh, "Coach, um, I want to pay you to allow me to coach on the team. I'll pay I'll pay you fifty bucks a week if you allow me to coach on the team." That was part of his stipend. He was getting some type of stipend or some type of allowance um, for for uh, for going to Michigan. Uh, so Allen was going to pay him part of a stipend. So Chrysler said to him, "Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me. We're going to pay you. We're going to we're it was we're going to make you an assistant coach on the lightweight team, the 150 pound and under team, which was formed just that year. Uh, 1947 was the first year of that, and it was it was comprised of four teams in the Big Ten. It was Michigan, Ohio State, Wisconsin, I think." Illinois, maybe in the fourth. So, but Allen was an assistant coach on that 150 pound team. So that's just an example of, of his cunning, of his of his moxie in in going about things and in thinking out of, out of the box. That's what he was all about, really. How did Hallis uh, uh, discover him, so to speak, after a year with the Rams, and 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 what was sort of the romance and the story there to to bring him into the Bears organization? Because he was. He was there. I, I think a lot of people, it, it's lost on a lot of people. Well, as the generations go by, a lot of things get lost on people, but I digress. Uh, he, he was part of the Bears organization from, you know, late 50s and, and most of the early 60s. I don't think most people remember that. That is correct. Yes, he was with the Bears from 1959 through 65, so seven seasons total. Um, the way he first came in contact with Hallis, and I, I wrote this in the in the uh, book, is uh, it was some type of coaches uh, NFL meeting that Allen found a way to go to it was in the in Phoenix. I think that's where he first came in contact with Hallis, but that's not where he was. Where Hallis offered him the job uh, in the during the period when Al, Allen was out of coaching after being fired by the Rams in 1957, he was selling uh, selling golf clubs. He was doing a car wash. Uh, it was called the Rams Car Wash in, in the Los Angeles area. It had no affiliation to the team, but he was allowed to, to use that name. He was also selling these um, really heavy – they weren't footballs, but they was these balls. I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you know, you you kind of pass them around and you like – Medicine balls. Your arm. What's, what's that? Medicine, medicine balls. balls, yeah. Medicine balls. He was selling those. So he made his way into – the among the other teams that he went to, he made his way into the Bears – uh, camp or or, uh, or training site, and there was someone on the Bears staff who Alan came to know, and then later uh, became good friends with, who saw that he was out of a job and thought that he would be really good for the Bears to bring in. Um, the Bears, as as um, what what happened in the ensuing months, they they had an opening in their scouting staff. But so this other person on the Bears staff thought Al Allen would be really good to bring in. And he said that to Hallis. So Hallis uh, brought him. He, oh, Al, Al, uh, Hallis pumped him for information in two game prior to two games against the Rams late in the 1958 season because Allen had been with the Rams in 57. So Hallis pumped him for information. And then after the 58 season, Hallis hired him for good. To, to be the head talent scout of the Bears. It wasn't until late in the 1962 season when Clark Shaughnessy 
the, the famous Clark Shaughnessy, who's actually uh, most famous for the um, the T formation, devising the T formation, but he was also a great defensive coach. He left the Bears as the defensive coordinator late in the 62 season. He, he had a run-in with Hallis. Uh, the two were at each other's throats. He just walked out, and uh, Hallis tapped Allen to coach the defense for the, the last three Bears games that season and then made him the permanent defensive head coach, defensive coach uh, for the 63 season, which leads me to the story of how uh, Allen was the architect of that great Bears defense that led the Bears to the 63 NFL championship. That was one of the greatest defenses in NFL history. Yeah, for sure. And he was also part of, I mean, some some legendary uh, legendary Chicago Bear names, right? That 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 uh, went on to, I mean, he. I think he was um, he was involved by the time he left the Bears in '65. He was he was involved in the in in the college draft uh, uh, scenarios for the. So I, I'm guessing then he was responsible for folks like Ditka and, and Gail Sayers and and uh, the recently departed uh, Dick Butkus, uh, uh, eventually getting into that roster. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, he was very, he was instrumental in drafting Ditka. He was also key to Ditka becoming a split end or, or a tight end. He, he's, and, and I interviewed Ditka about this and he credited Allen with going to Hallis and saying, listen, um, Ditka's got pass catching ability. We got to get him away from the offensive tackle. Let him, let him split out a little bit. And so Ditka became the first true uh what do you call modern day tight end in the NFL that, and, and this was in his rookie season, he was NFL rookie of the year. Um, and uh, he was just piling up those catches. So Ditka being a future hall of famer, uh, 62, uh, Allen led the drafting of Ronnie bull, who was uh, NFL rookie of the year and bull that season gained only like 400 yards rushing, but still um, that was enough to, to earn the distinction of NFL rookie of the year. In 65, you touched on it. Uh, first, the, the Bears had, well, they had the number three and four picks in the first round. They also had number eight. I'll get to that in a second. They drafted Butkus with number three. They drafted Sayers, number four, both of whom were first ballot uh, pro football inductees, which, and many people say that is the greatest or one of the greatest drafts in NFL history. I would have to say one of the greatest, the 74 Steelers draft, which landed them uh, uh, four future Hall of Famers, and then they signed uh, Donnie Shell as a fifth future Hall of Famer. Uh, that was, I think, that that was the greatest of all time. But and then in back in the '65, so with the eighth pick, Allen uh, led the drafting of a guy named Steve DeLong, who was an offensive tackle. Uh, DeLong opted to play for the San Diego Chargers in the AFL. Back then, the the two leagues were still competing for players. It wasn't until the following year that they agreed to have like, like one whole draft involving all of the AFL and NFL teams. So uh, DeLong agreed to play for the uh, San Diego chargers in the AFL. He was a two-time pro bowler. So if you add him to the bears mix that year, that makes that draft totally insane. I mean, Allen was one of the greatest general managers in NFL history. That's certainly a fact that get, gets lost on, on, a lot of people. I mean, he just, he had a tremendous eye for rookie talent, which leads me to say that I asked Bruce Allen, his son, you know, what, what was it about your father 
mean, he had such a, a keen eye for rookie talent, drafting these these future Hall of Famers, great players like Ronnie Bold, DeLong, whatever, uh, going after free agents like uh, uh, Roosevelt Taylor, uh, defensive back at Grambling. Allen found him and then signed him as a free agent. Roosevelt Taylor had uh, uh, nine interceptions in that 63 season, which tied for the league lead. Uh, and yeah, Allen, Allen found him, signed him as a free agent. So I, I asked Bruce Allen. So he focused, he had this eye for rookies as the talent scout for the bears. Then in the NFL, he focused so much on veterans. Why, why that, that disparity there, you know, what, what led to that? And, and Bruce said, well, it had to do with the fact that when he got to the NFL, the coaching, the pressure on the coaches was, was really building at the time. And, and we're talking 1966. Uh, it wasn't like it is today, but the coaches were coming under a lot more pressure to succeed early on. So that's why Allen went after the veterans. He thought veteran players could deliver those wins much faster than rookie players, which is a major reason that Allen had that great 67 season, the 11-1-2 season. He had some great veteran players on that team. He had, um, first of all, he inherited the fearsome foursome, uh, Merlin Olson, Deacon Jones, uh, Rosie Greer, Lamar Lundy. Uh, Greer got, he, he tore his Achilles in the 67 preseason. So Allen being Allen, I mean, he had this Rolodex of <laughs> veteran players that he wanted to go after. He he traded for Roger Brown, the great uh, Detroit Lions defensive tackle. So Roger Brown became, he replaced Greer uh, as one of the fearsome foursome and the defensive line just kept rolling along. That was George Allen. He, he knew of these, again, that's another example of, of his workaholic nature and his, his attention details and knowing who was available. You didn't have a computer system back then, okay? He had all this written out, all this in his handwritten charts, who was available for acquisition. And Roger Brown was out there as Brown in an interview told me, I was I was there for the taking and George Allen found me. All right. What's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show uh, fairly often. Our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form really cool sort of literal high quality professionally you know made materials but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is uh and just about every league that's ever existed save from the nfl uh we're talking xfl uh old versions of uh the wfl remember the world football league how about various teams both current and past in the canadian football league but also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time 
And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. Tell me about his departure from from the Bears. Did, did, from what you could tell, did Hallis essentially promise Allen that he would get the head coaching job? And maybe Allen just got a little too itchy to get going with that and and knew he wasn't going to get it, especially given the the Bears were doing so well, arguably because of Allen's draft uh, 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 picks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Sounds like Hallis didn't want to give up the ropes too quickly. I think that is correct. I think there was a jealousy on the part of Hallis. Uh, according to the Allen family, Hallis made a verbal promise to George Allen that he would succeed him at some point. Well, after the 65 season, well, the Bears had a pretty good year in 65. They went nine and five. They didn't make the postseason. But um, Allen w- was getting antsy. I mean, he he wanted – he knew he was head coaching material and he he knew he was wanted by a lot of teams after that 63 season, he was a hot commodity in the NFL. So after 65, the Rams opening was available and Allen went after it. Uh, he came in contact with uh, Dan Reeves, the Rams owner and Reeves offered him the job. So Allen, I, I mean, uh, George Hallis didn't, wouldn't let him go. Hallis, was upset. Uh, he thought that uh, Allen went behind his back in speaking with Dan Reeves and Hallis took him to court. He filed a civil suit in uh, Cook County uh, Circuit Court uh, in the Chicago area and said uh, Allen uh, was in breach of contract. And, and I did actually did have a copy of the contract and it said that um, Allen, Allen had uh, access to material uh, sort of like what we call classified bears material that that Hallis didn't want other teams to uh, to have access to. So Hallis felt that that Allen was in breach of contract by wanting to go to another team because he had access to that that material. That was the basis for the lawsuit. Uh, a judge did rule in in Hallis's favor, but Hallis dropped the uh, dropped the lawsuit, dropped the victory, and said. Uh, George Allen, you're free to go to the Los Angeles Rams. At the same time, there was a very uh, kind of frosty handshake in the courtroom at that time. Uh, Allen uh, uh, stretched his arm out, but Hallis Hallis barely reciprocated. And uh, so from that point on, Hallis knew he was never going to hire George Allen again. Case in point, when the uh, Bears job came open, after the 81 season, Hallis hired Mike Ditka. Allen actually inquired with Hallis about that job, but Hallis, uh, 
had no interest in him at that point. Hallis just held a grudge for him for years to come and never never would hire him again. I think it was for reasons of jealousy that he he didn't hire George Allen at that point, but they were players on that Bears team that were very, very disappointed. They were disappointed that he wasn't hired, that Hallis didn't step down after the 63 season and and hand over the coaching reins to to George Hall uh, to uh to Allen. Um so and Ed O'Bradovich, I remember interviewing him about this, and he said it was time for for George Hallis to be put out to pasture. Uh, he his coaching uh, yeah, his coaching day had uh, had come and gone. I mean, he'd been with the Bears organization since their inception in in 1920. Um, you know, he was part of the uh, the uh, group of uh, NFL. Oh, I mean, he wasn't an NFL owner at that time, but he was present in the uh, Pupmobile showroom in Canton when the league was initiated in 1920. So he had oh, been sure. with that with that organization forever. So, but Obradovich and a number of other Bears players thought it was time for for George Allen to to take over the the head coaching reins of the team. Well, there's an irony there, too. In 67, I mean, Allen became coach of the year with the Rams, right? I, I think they went 11-1-2 that season. Uh, and I think it was the first time they had made the playoffs in, I don't know, 12, 15 years, something like that. And well, It was since, since 1955, 55, since they went to the... So the but, NFL championship game in 1955, which they, I, I they lost to the Cleveland Browns that year. Yeah, I don't know the answer to this, but but did did the Rams play the Bears that year? And if so, there must have been a bit of tension across the sidelines. They definitely played them in '66. I believe there was a they split that year. They played them twice. I'm sure they played them in '67 as well. Um, I don't have the schedule right in front of me, but I'm sure hey, they played them in '67. Any incident? Uh, that was actually you, the first. You, let me just say that was actually yeah, the first year of the um, the four division NFL. You had the the coastal, the yeah yeah anyway four divisions. You had the two conferences. You had the Eastern Conference. You had the Western Conference. Interestingly, the uh, Baltimore Colts were in the coastal division with the Rams. That's why the Rams and Colts played each other twice that year. Well, I'm just curious as there, there must have been some iciness there, uh, maybe in the handshake or maybe lack thereof, and 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 that kind of stuff. This, I mean, you know, and this is a guy clearly on the uh, the ascent when uh, you know, obviously, Hallis was uh, sort of in the, in his twilight. Oh, absolutely, Allen was uh, was the the hot coach at the time, uh, and particularly after that '68 season when Reed's fired him for the first time for another just you know mind boggling. Uh, reason uh, Allen had three had had three winning seasons in his uh, three years of coaching the Rams and Reeves just didn't like the uh, you know some of Allen's ways such as high spending with the veterans. I mean he that was the, your, the first sign of Allen offering uh, big bucks to to veteran players. Reeves didn't appreciate that at all. Um, so Reeves fired him after the '68 season and in one of the surreal moments in George Allen's coaching career. Allen called a press conference at a ritzy Los Angeles hotel right after that firing. And 20 of his Rams players showed up for that conference. Merlin Olson, Deacon Jones, um, uh, Roman Gabriel, Ed Metter, uh, a number of uh, his other veteran players. They said, we've been around here for, for a while. We finally have a winning coach. If George Allen is not rehired as a Rams coach, we're quitting. Reeves rehired him two weeks later. That's Although cool. he did he, he did say he did say that 
the, the press conference and the players threatening to to quit was not the reason he rehired him but but you have to believe that uh, that is uh, uh, that was the major reason if not the sole reason so i mean would you consider him then i guess the term that would immediately come to mind for that kind of situation is he was he a was he a player's coach or i mean or what was it about him that in, that it that the those players maybe those veteran players is the answer uh, saw in Allen that they would go to that kind of length publicly to defend him and and support him. It was for the reason that it was the first time a lot of them had had a winner. I mean, they were just just horrible in the previous years. Uh, I mentioned that four and ten season in sixty five. There were other very just totally pathetic teams in in those early sixties to to sixty five. Uh, even I should say starting in the late fifties and then through the mid sixties. Uh, they just uh, they were not competitive at all. I mean, they were the type of team that uh, opponents would look at as a as a scrimmage on their schedule. They were that bad. Um, so, but when 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 Allen came there, he, you know, you he inherited a lot of great players. I, I mentioned the fearsome foursome. There were some really good players on that defense. But what Allen did is he disciplined that team. But they were they were really a a lazy team. They were a partying team. Uh, they, you know, would stay out late and in, in uh, you know hit the uh, L.A. nightclubs or whatever. Allen, he didn't tolerate any of that. Okay, he was a he had these long three hour practices in the hot you know Southern California temperatures, and and the players hated it. I mean, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, they were called those those practices were a bitch to them. And that that's they would say that and. Um, and so, for instance, Deacon Jones, he he was very undisciplined as a player prior to Allen's arrival, even though he was a member of the Fearsome Foursome. It wasn't until Allen got there and really unleashed him as a pass rusher. I mean, he had he had you know plenty of sacks before Allen arrived, but Al- Allen unleashed him and uh, uh, and also um, you know held him in high esteem and 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 showed him a lot of respect and deacon jones really appreciated that and the two became very close over the years um allen was his uh, presenter when when uh, jones was inducted into the hall of fame in 1980 and um and deacon jones gave the initial speech when allen was inducted in 2002 so allen became very close with him and also the allen family became very close with deacon jones who was a pallbearer at uh, at allen's funeral in um in January of 1991. So, but, but Allen really, he disciplined not only Jones, but the rest of that team when those were long practices and, uh, and the play that, so in answer to your question, that's what the players really appreciated about them. <laughs> I'm not saying that they, they love the practices, but it made them a winning team. So that's why they went to bat for him at that press conference and, and demanded his return. I think there was almost an implicit belief, I guess, from Reeves when when he kind of brought him back, if you will, for the week or two that he was gone, um, that it that it was kind of like, okay, let's get us over the hump into into the championship land. But it's interesting. I think maybe that's probably the arguing maybe the sort of if you look back in history, is about this time that uh, you could argue, and this was very plainly clear in in the seventies and in the and much of the eighties. Um, the times that the Rams were decent, uh, they win a division championship here and there or on a fairly consistent basis. They constantly and chronically underachieved in the playoffs and and never really got to that that mountaintop, despite 
a number of seasons where they were, if not competitive, almost expected to kind of maybe that be a year to maybe actually do it. Right. Well, in the seventies, they, they were one of the best teams in the NFC. Uh, they played in the NFC championship game uh, two or three times and they, they made the playoffs uh, quite a few times. Well, every season under Chuck Knox, who coached them from 73 through 77, a total of five seasons, but he could never get them into the Super Bowl. And so Carol Rosenblum, then, then the uh, Rams owner, he, he let Knox walk after the 77 season. It wasn't a firing. Knox took the job with the Buffalo Bills. So that's how that that job opened with the Los Angeles Rams. Knox wanted a coach who could get them into the Super Bowl. One of the things that was impeding their way into the Super Bowl is um, the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys had beaten them in the playoffs and in the NFC Championship game. Um, and also the Minnesota Vikings were, were in their way as well. So uh, Rosenblum wanted a coach – who could beat? Who who had the game plan to beat the Dallas Cowboys? That is a major reason that he hired George Allen. Of course, as as the story goes, Allen lasted for only two exhibition games in that '78 uh, preseason, and Rosenblum fired him, which was so ridiculous in itself. All right, well, let's get let's get to Washington because obviously that that, that L.A.'s uh, fumbling, shall we say, is Washington's gain. How does this happen? And the guy of uh, in uh, important in this conversation you, you hinted at him before this is sort of maybe one of the budding sort of sports moguls before that was a thing uh in various regions and that was edward bennett williams who uh, was the owner of the team at that point he edward bennett williams was a minority owner actually the the owner with the highest percentage was, was jack and cook who who alan also knew my mistake uh, you're correct of course that's okay that's okay no alan a lot of people um uh don't know that uh that comparison there but um but it, yeah, Edward. But, but uh, to what you were saying, Edward Bennett Williams ran the daily operations of the the Redskins at the time because Cook owned the Los Angeles Lakers and Los Angeles Kings, and the NFL had this rule that prevented, um, like this cross ownership rule. So if you own teams in other leagues, you couldn't coach any, or you couldn't own or run the uh, daily operations of the team you owned in the NFL. So. Uh, Cook uh, relinquished his um, uh, his voting and his um, uh, and, and the, uh, running the daily operations to Edward Bennett Williams. Edward Bennett Williams, he, as the saying goes, uh, um, he hired George Allen. Said George Allen will be the last coach I ever hire. And then the the relationship really uh, they were at each other's throats after a few years. Uh, like Dan Reeves, Williams did not appreciate Allen uh, going after these high-priced uh, uh, veteran players. And uh, uh, Williams was saying that the, the Redskins were losing money at the time. So the, the two really, they didn't get along at all. They, they barely spoke after a while. But in 77, prior to the 77 season, Edward Bennett Williams did offer him a contract extension, which contradicts the story that Allen was fired after the 77 season. I don't think by definition he was fired. He wanted that Rams job and he didn't sign the extension in my opinion. And I wrote this in the, in the book because he, he really wanted that Rams job. He and his wife wanted to go back to Los Angeles. They still had their home in, uh, in uh, Palace Verdes Estates, a swank uh, LA suburb. So uh, they wanted to go back here. That's how he, that that's how that whole process, uh, uh, played out uh, and why he left the Redskins and went back to the, to the Rams at that point. But uh, 
let me give an example of how Williams thought that Allen was spending too much money. After the 74 season, Williams wrote him a memo. And I actually uh, acquired this. I went to the – there was an Allen um, collection in the archives at the Pro Football Hall of Fame that the family donated. And I came across this memo, and it said – you cannot keep George, uh, Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer on the team at the same time. They're just making too much money. At the time, Sonny Jurgensen, I think he made $185,000 in 1974. Kilmer made one hundred twenty-five. dollars Back then, I mean, that was a lot of money. Even though, you know, Joe Namath had been the first, um, you know, highly paid quarterback in the AFL making $400,000 in, in the 60s. But still, uh, those payments for Jurgensen and Kilmer, that was a lot of money. So Williams said, you cannot keep both of these guys on the team at the same time. So that is why George Allen approached Sonny Jurgensen, who had been injury riddled in Allen's first four years, 71 through 74, and said, Sonny, I'm sorry, we're not going to renew your contract. And that's what led to the departure of Sonny Jurgensen. But that's just one example of Edward Bennett Williams saying, you know, we're losing money. You can't keep both of these guys on the team. There were other players that Allen had acquired in, in 71 when he first came to the Redskins, like Maxie Bond, who had, I think he had played in like two games in 74, and that was it. He was still on the roster. And Williams said he had to go. Uh, Myron Patios, linebacker. So another interesting thing about that memo is that Williams spoke very highly of Joe Theismann, who Theismann's rookie year was 1974. And Williams thought, hey, Joe Theismann has a lot of potential. And he told George Allen, you've got to give him a chance. Give him a chance as a starter. And um, Ed Marchabroda, who was the, the Redskins offensive coach at the time, also spoke highly of Theismann. He wanted, he, he thought George, uh, that Theismann deserved a chance to be the starter on that Redskins team. It wasn't until two years later, 1976, that Allen first gave Theismann a a chance to truly start. And then Theismann started a few more games in 77. So I, I actually explored this in the book. I said, what if George Allen had given Joe Theismann an earlier chance to start at quarterback? Would Theismann ha have developed sooner as a really good NFL quarterback? So, and, and would that improved, have improved Allen's chances of making the going deeper into the playoffs in 76 well, 74 season, they got knocked out in the first round. 76, they got knocked out in the first round. And actually that, as I wrote, it played into Allen's preference for veterans and that they they didn't really have the the endurance to to really you know keep moving keep moving you know full speed toward toward the end of the season. They were really losing at that point. And that was one of the theories that I, I mentioned in the book that and why they couldn't get past the first round in the playoffs. Well, look, his, he thought, what's that? Yeah, I was going to say, his, his approach, obviously, is probably uh, uh, almost burnished uh, during those uh, those years in Washington is, is sort of, uh, I guess, if you will, less focused on the future and more focused on uh, on the now, right? The over the hill gang was sort of the was the terminology that I think everybody right. in the league kind of recognized. And uh, it was almost a, a deference, if you will, for for veterans, high priced as they might have been to shall we say, win now and and we'll deal with the next year or the years after later. And I guess that catches up with you after a while and perhaps sort of accumulated, uh, you know, by the time he left in uh, in 77 that uh, or 78 um, that, you know, that, uh, you know, it it didn't sort of occur. I mean, at uh, 72, obviously, was I don't know if it was an aberration by losing 
the Super Bowl, but um, you know, they never really made it back to that that level again. However, they were a force in the NFC East for many years under his tutelage. Oh, they were, yes. Uh I don't think it was an aberration uh, for them to have lost that Super Bowl seven game to Miami. I mean, Miami obviously was a very good team. And although the Redskins had every opportunity to win that game, they just had some terrible luck that day. But then in the ensuing years, uh, well, first, let me start. 71, they lost in the first round of the playoffs to the San Francisco 49ers. 73, 74, 76, and 77. So five of Allen's, let's see, four of Allen's seven years, they lost in the first round of the playoffs. 73, 74, and then 76. So were the last three years. So in those years, yes, they were very competitive in the NFC and they were giving teams fits and Allen was winning season after season, but they didn't really have, they they couldn't really go the extra yard, so to speak, toward the end of the season. That was the, that was the belief among many of Allen's competitors in the NFL and even, you know, sports writers as well. Uh, They, they felt that, that Allen, Allen's teams didn't have what it takes to go all the way. I mean, you had teams that were much better in that era. The Dallas Cowboys being one, the Steelers. Well, sorry, let me interrupt you there. That was also the, the that was a, the decade really where that rivalry really came into its own. And I, it sounds like like George Allen was almost kind of the 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 the, the gas tank for for fueling that fire between that team and and then elevating that rivalry. Oh, absolutely. Well, actually, those two teams, the Redskins, Cowboys, they had a rivalry in the '60s with Sonny Jurgensen. Uh, coach the Redskins and uh, Don Meredith, the Cowboys, they had some very high scoring games and wild shootouts. So they had a rivalry back then. It wasn't though when Allen, until Allen came to the Redskins in 1971, that that, that rivalry really intensified. And it was all George Allen. I mean, he, he had this really, this just dislike for the Cowboys and their, their organization and their, their, sort of you know pompous reputation they weren't known as america's team at the time but they still had the kind of this corporate image uh he didn't like landry he didn't like tech shram uh he actually see interestingly tech shram and pete roselle worked together at the los angeles rams in the 1950s so alan always thought that because of shram knowing roselle that that roselle roselle gave the cowboy he had favoritism toward the cowboys in that era. And in fact, in 71, Allen's first season, the, the Redskins' first three games that year were against NFC East opponents on the road. I mean, that's unthinkable today. I mean, that, that just wouldn't happen. But Bruce Allen told me that that was something that was uh, concocted by, by you know, the Shram, uh, uh, Roselle duo and you know just just to set the, the Redskins back to make Allen look bad in his first season but so and, and so happened that Allen won those three games including beating the Cowboys in the third game uh in Dallas and then he won uh, uh his fourth and fifth games in that 71 season they started out five and oh so um uh but yeah to your point Allen did intensify that rivalry and he had a 10 and 10 record against Tom Landry throughout his career he he really he gave Landry a fight, you know. Every every time they played, it, almost every time they played, it was a really it was a battle between the two teams. And uh, so, but also to to the point I was making earlier, they they just didn't have the the um, uh, the younger players to go the distance toward toward the end of the season and into the playoffs. Uh, they didn't have the depth on their teams. And you know, I, I also said, and 
you know, what if Allen had dared to be bad for a season or two? You know, what what if he he built through the draft for a couple of seasons? What would have happened to those Redskins teams? Would they have been any better? It's just, you know, it's just a, you know, it, 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 it's a hypothetical thing, but, you know, it, it's something that I wanted to explore in the book. You know, what if he didn't have this, such an emphasis on veteran players? You know, would, would things have been different with the Redskins? So, you know, it's just, uh, you know, something to look back on. What would have happened? Could he be an accused for of working the team too hard, possibly, so that they weren't sort of fresh enough or, or, or nimble enough come postseason? Well, I don't know if his practices were as hard at that point. I, I, I don't, I didn't get that far in terms of my research. I, I don't think I had any of the Redskins players say that they were really, except for Super Bowl seven, which was Al, one of Allen's biggest mistakes. He really overworked them in the two weeks prior to Super Bowl seven. They worked really hard that first week in uh, the Washington area at their training site in um, Redskins Park in Ashburn, Virginia. And then after flying to Los Angeles, he still worked them very hard in the days preceding the Super Bowl. So one of the beliefs is that they were really burned out for that Super Bowl game. But generally, I didn't really get the impression from, from any Redskins players that he overworked them, that they were burned out because of, of practicing too hard. If anything, I think his practices were easier. They were long but they were they were very methodical type practices. He would he would go over the same routines or the same plays or the same you know positioning you know time after time. He he was that way, very methodical, very detail oriented. Um, so, but you know, to your point, I didn't really get that impression that the the Redskins players were overworked. All right, I want to get to his denou- the, the denouement of this story uh, in a minute, but I do before we leave the the, the Washington Redskins uh, story. I want to I got to ask I got to ask this this interesting asterisk. Tell me about what you found out, if anything new, or just reiterate about the bizarre interactions and suggestions by the then President Richard Nixon uh, with this team. I'm glad you asked me that, Tim, because not, nobody's really mentioned that except for me initiating it. But Allen first met um, Richard Nixon in his second year coaching at Whittier. It was it was at an NCAA banquet, and that's where the two first met. Which I mean, the, the story, the widely held belief is that they first met when they intersected in the nation's capital in 1971, but that's not really true. They met in the early 50s, and they really hit it off. Nixon was a graduate of Whittier. So he wanted to meet the, the football coach at Whittier. Uh, Nixon had been invited to that banquet and uh, they, they were talking X's and O's right, right there. Nixon was a very astute U S president in terms of football. I mean, he was, I don't think anybody else in the white house knew football as well as he did and knew sports as well as he did for that matter. He was really astute when it came to sports uh, so then in later years, they they kept in contact. Uh, Nixon, I came across a few letters that uh, Nixon wrote him when uh, Allen coached the, the Rams uh, for the first time in the 60s. Like one, Nixon wrote him after the 68 season uh, saying, I don't understand why, why Dan Reeves is firing you at this time. Well, anyway, uh, Reeves' loss will be some other team's game. So Nixon was, they were keeping in touch then. So then when they came, when they, um, uh, came in contact again in 1971 when Allen became the Redskins coach. So there was a period in that 1971 season, uh, the Redskins 
had lost uh, two of their past three games. I think it was two losses and a tie. So they had gone winless in three games. So they were they were struggling. So uh, uh, Nixon contacted George Allen and said, or Nixon's office, and I'd like to I'd like to come out to uh, to Redskins Park and give give the players a pep talk. So Allen agreed to it. Nixon came out to Redskins Park. It was around Thanksgiving in 1971, and the story that I wrote in the book, and this a lot of this came from Marv Levy, who was the special teams coach at the time. But Nixon fed Allen a play while Nixon was at that practice. Allen uh, Nixon actually called a few plays when he was at the practice, and one of them was that uh, that end around that ended up being the uh, the botched play in the in the playoff game against the 49ers. Um, so. But but Allen had fed him the play to make to make Nixon look like a really intelligent uh, football mind. And then in the ensuing weeks, when the Redskins ended up playing the San Francisco 49ers in the in the first round of the playoffs, Nixon had that play in his back pocket. And he actually he contacted the Redskins in the days preceding the game. He, he spoke with Allen. And he spoke with Billy Kilmer. Redskins quarterback, and he said, "I'd like to see that end around call to to Jefferson during the game." He didn't say when he wanted it called. Uh, so then during the game, uh, Nixon didn't phone it in. Didn't phone in that play during the game. Uh, he uh, Ted Marchabroda called that play late in the first half. Marchabroda, the Redskins offensive coordinator, he called that play uh, late in the first half. It was kind of a weird time to call it because the Redskins. They had a first and goal on the – or they, I think they had first and 10 on the 49ers' 12-yard line. Um, so if they had scored another touchdown, they may have put that, that game away. Uh, they were head 10-3 to three at that point. But uh, Cedric Hardman, the, the 49ers defensive end, he caught Jeff Roy Jefferson for a 10-yard loss on that play. And uh, then the Redskins' field goal attempt, there was a low snap, so they never got the kickoff. So they went into halftime up 10-3. They were demoralized. They ended up losing that game. So then in the you know in 72 and 73, they they kept in touch. They they actually had a phone call after a 72 Redskins win over the Cowboys. It was a 24-20 win at RFK Stadium. They had a phone call where where Nixon congratulated Allen on the win. And Allen was saying like, Hey, uh, Mr. President, thank you for the call. And, you know, the ground was trembling down there. The, the fans were so excited, which is one thing about RFK Stadium. That was true. That the stands did did shake and the ground did did tremble. So um, uh, and, and that phone call, interestingly, became a part of the Watergate tapes. I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't mentioned, of course, during any of the congressional hearings, but it was a part of the uh, of the Watergate, the famous uh, Watergate tapes. So also Nixon and Allen had, they were both alike in many ways. Uh, they were both very industrious men. They were both very focused on their jobs, uh, both, you know, very, very intelligent, astute when it came to their, their work. They were also, they had this uh, antipathy for the media. Both of them despised the media. We know that about Nixon. I mean, he said it uh, when he lost the governorship in California uh, in 1962, you know, you can, uh, kick, you know, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. So he hated the media. He hated the media um, uh, in the early seventies when when Watergate came about. He had the uh, his enemies list in the media, uh, and and George Allen was the same way. He could not stand the press. He thought they were they were prying. Uh, they were 
uh, you know, trying to to uh, gather intelligence on his team uh, that they would they would share with other teams. Uh, so he just couldn't stand the press either. So that that's part of the the uh, strange relationship, or uh, I guess a storied relationship, uh, uh, however you want to characterize it, between uh, Nixon and George Allen. Not the only bizarre relationship that Nixon had with various uh, uh, people in 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 sports and entertainment. Elvis being another one, but that's a huge digression. All right, let, let's uh, let's uh, sort of uh, uh, get to the third stint with the Rams because this was kind of an odd nineteen seventy eight. So he leaves he leaves the Redskins uh, at the end of the seventy um, seven. Well, in in the early nineteen seventy eight, the end of the season of seventy seven. Uh, can you briefly describe sort of the uh, odd situation that occurred in in '78? Because you you hinted at it before two two exhibition games, and he's gone. Um, why? How? And uh, interestingly, what happened to the team that year uh, when all was said and done? Not to his uh, liking, I guess. Right. Uh- he was hired by the Rams. Carol Rosenblum hired him in January of 1978 uh, after Allen left the Redskins and Edward Ben Williams wouldn't, wouldn't uh, consider his contract anymore. Rosenblum, it was apparent from the very first press conference that Rosenblum had him on a short leash. Uh, he, he was making these uh, snarky remarks at, at the press conference that George doesn't win a Super Bowl in his first year. Uh, we may have to reconsider his contract or something like that. You know, it, it was kind of, it was jokes, but I think it was they were they were threats disguised as jokes. Were those and, unrealistic uh, expectations? Because Lord knows, in seventy eight, seventy nine, the Rams were a pretty damn good team. They were. They, I don't think it was unrealistic at all. They ended up finishing twelve and four, I believe, in in seventy eight. They again, they lost in the um, in the, the NFC Championship game to the Cowboys. So, um, but back to to the seventy eight preseason, Allen was doing things his way. He. When, when training camp started that summer, he, first of all, he had this no water policy, which was driving the players crazy. I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a health consideration at that point. And also the players were, it was, you have to consider the period, the, the players were gathering m- much more power and, and a much greater say in what was going on. Allen could get away with that stuff in the 60s. He couldn't really get away with it at that point. The team doctor told Alan, "Listen, you you cannot continue doing this. So we're going to have a, a like a health catastrophe here if if you don't allow these players to drink water during practice." Uh, so that was one thing the players hated. First of all, some of the players disliked it from the very start that uh, he was even hired. Isaiah Robertson, the Rams linebacker, didn't want him hired. Pat Hayden uh, didn't want him hired. Um, Fred. Um, uh, who later played Hunter in, um, in Fred the Dreyer. series. Fred Dreyer. Fred Dreyer didn't want him hired. Fred Dreyer wanted Don Coriel hired. Okay. Uh, Coriel was uh, let go by the uh, San Diego Chargers, uh, by the, I'm sorry, by the um, the Cardinals, by the Cardinals after the 77 season. So Coriel was available. But um, so Dreyer wanted the Rams to hire uh, Don Coriel. Uh, Rosenblum wouldn't do it. He had to give up a first round draft pick. He said, I'm, I'm not doing that for any head coach. Dreyer's point was that all the Rams needed was a great offensive mind. They had a tremendous defense. You know, not only Dreyer, they had Jack Jack Youngblood. They had Jack uh, Hacksaw Reynolds, uh, Isaiah Robertson, who I mentioned earlier. They had a lot of great defensive players. So Dreyer told Rosenblum, all we need is Don Coriel. We'll score 50 points a game. We'll beat every team. 
nobody will be able to compete with us. Rosenblum hired George Allen. He wanted his game plan for beating the Dallas Cowboys. So I mentioned the water policy. Um, Allen also had this trash, no trash policy on the practice field. He didn't like it. He, he you know, the players would leave cups and, and trash on the field. Allen, Allen didn't like that at all. He said, you know, you guys got to pick up after yourselves. He didn't like them sitting on helmets, sitting on their helmets during practice. He, he thought that was a sign of laziness. So it was like a mutiny. The players went to the owner. They said, you know, we just don't like this guy. You know, they lost their first two preseason games. Uh, both of them, they were they were pretty much manhandled. Uh, the offense really didn't show up in either game. Uh, uh, Allen just said after the second game, you know, uh, to to the Rosenblum's Carol and his son Steve, who was the uh, the team president. He said, "Listen, you just got to be patient with me. Uh, my system is going to work." And they just fired him right away. After the second preseason game, they that's they didn't give him a chance at all. Um, but it was for those reasons that the, there was a mutiny on the team. The play, some of those players disliked him from the very start, and then it just compounded itself with these, you know, Allen's way of practicing long practices uh, in the Southern California heat, no water policy, uh, didn't like the you know trash being left on the field. The players just couldn't stand any of that stuff. And Dreyer told me this interesting story. That one day after practice, it, I think it was between the first and second exhibition game. One day after practice, Allen went into one of the end zones. He called uh, Dreyer and uh, and Jack Youngblood over. He said, listen, guys, um, you know, I just traded Isaiah Robertson to the Packers. And Dreyer, <laughs> Dreyer, as he told me, he said, he looked at Jack Youngblood and he said, he said to, to Youngblood, he said, is he allowed to do that? <laughs> and Youngblood said, no, he's not. In Allen's contract, Allen was only the head coach. He wasn't the general manager. He didn't have the authorization to make any trades. He didn't have that that um, personnel authority that he had with the Redskins. And even so, even so, a, control, a control freak who couldn't control the player personnel, but he could control practices and the litter. Well, well, I also interviewed uh, Doug Krikorian, who was a reporter for the, one of the Southern California newspapers. He was a Daily Beat reporter. Uh, for that newspaper at the time, he said, listen, I had every story on that team for seven years. I wrote, I wrote uh, seven stories a week. That didn't happen. I don't, I don't remember that story happening at all, but whether it happened or not, that story apparently got back to, to Rosa Bloom. And I, I think something got through to, from the Packers to the, the Rams about that, um, uh, about that, apparent trade, which was never consummated, by the way. Um, so, but but like I said, Krikorian denied that it ever took place, uh, which I <laughs> I made that uh, distinction in the book. But anyway, that, that story uh, did get back to the owners. And uh, for all those reason, reasons combined that I'm, I'm laying out, that was, uh, they, they, they just let Allen go after two exhibition games. And they hired Ray Malavasi, who, who uh, Allen didn't like, who was... Uh, um, apparently one of the alcoholics that was on the, the Ram staff and they hired Malavasi. It ended up that Malavasi got them to the, uh, to the Super Bowl in 79. And then they, that Rams team barely, they beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC championship game. Nine, nothing. That was Doug Williams quarterback team. They finished only nine and seven in the regular season. It was one of their, their worst teams of that era record wise. 
um, and they barely beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And but they gave the Steelers a fight in the Super Bowl that year. It was Super Bowl fourteen, if you recall. I think the Rams were up nineteen to seventeen at halftime. Uh, the Steelers came back in the second half. They just had too much firepower with uh, Bradshaw and um, uh, Swan and uh, Stallworth. But uh, but but they ended up going to the Super Bowl that year, which would and Carol Rosenblum actually never got to see it. He died before the '79 season in a a drowning incident off the coast of Florida. All right, so um, I, a lots more detail in the book, but I, I I don't I want don't want to end this conversation without at least uh, a, a couple of seconds here on uh, what happens afterwards. Obviously, we not so obviously he was on the, he went to CBS to to do a, a few seasons of of calling the games uh, in the media that he so uh, desperately did not like, which is ironic. Um, but uh, you described already his uh, uh, rebuff by uh, then uh, mere owner George Hallis uh, for the uh, the coaching spot that opened up for the Bears in '81. Um, can you describe a little bit about his uh, flirtation with the CFL and ultimately the uh, bizarre two years of, of the USFL, both Chicago and Arizona, but arguably those teams. Uh, kind of intersected in a bizarre way there too. Right. He did have a flirtation with the CFL, with the Montreal Alouettes. And he was going to become an owner of that team. But his son, uh, George Felix Allen, later the uh, U.S. Senator uh, and uh, Virginia governor, he talked him out of it. He said, uh, the, the money is not good. It's, it's The team is, is way too much in debt. This is not a good situation for you. So he never became an owner of the Alouettes. When the USFL was first a thought, which was shortly after that, after Allen dropped out of that uh, CFL uh, bid, uh, the USF, USFL became a thought. And um, Allen was offered to be the head coach of the Chicago Blitz. And he, he took it. He, he thought this was a great opportunity, not necessarily that he would steal fans from the Bears or get back at Hallis in any way. Um, but um, he just wanted to get back into coaching. That, that was who George Allen was. He was he was a football coach. And he had been passed up by a series of NFL teams. And uh, Bruce Allen thinks he was blackballed uh, from the league. I think so, too. I, why else would a team not hire George Allen as a head coach? I mean, I, the, the – the New York uh, papers, uh, it was New York posted a poll after the 79 season. Um, uh, should the, the Giants hire George Allen as their coach? Uh, and uh, the fans gave him the, the majority of the vote over Hank Stram and, and uh, one of the other names there. They wanted George Allen there. He was never hired back as a, as an NFL coach uh, to the day of his death. He, uh, but he was hired by the USFL uh, Chicago blitz, he coached there one year. Uh, it was a 12 and six year, then 18 game season, got them into the playoffs. Uh, they lost in the first round that year, but the following year, and it, it, I'm sure you're aware of the, of the team swap, the, the blitz swapped franchises with the Arizona Wranglers of the USFL. So the blitz became the Wranglers. Wranglers became the blitz. Allen became the coach of the Wranglers. Uh, he led the Wranglers to the USFL championship game that year. That Wranglers team, they beat the uh, Houston uh, Gamblers in the first round of the playoffs. That Gamblers team was quarterbacked by Jim Kelly with the run and shoot offense. 
and Allen devised the defense to to beat um, beat that Wranglers team. They were they were just a tremendously high scoring offense, and you know Allen with his uh, his his defensive genius just figured out a way. The following week, they he beat um, the Los Angeles team, well, co- quarterback by Steve Young, in the USFL um, in that uh, in the second round of the USFL playoffs, which got them into the championship game. They lost to the um, Philadelphia Stars in the championship game that year. So Allen, in his 14 seasons as a, a pro coach, 12 in the NFL and two in the USFL, he never won a championship of any kind. But uh, one of the, still one of the greatest ever uh, in the NFL. And you mentioned this earlier. He has a winning percentage of, of 7-12. He's third all-time for coaches with at least 100 victories. Uh, John Madden is first. Uh, Vince Lombardi is second. Then comes George Allen. Never had a losing season in his 12 years coaching in the NFL, which is phenomenal in itself. Never had a losing season at all in his in his pro coaching. And in 21 of 24 years of total coaching, you know, pros in college, he had winning seasons. And this guy was just addicted to, to coaching. And um, so, yeah. What, what in the eighties, he what? Go ahead, go ahead. No, I just want to mention in the eighties, he served in on the uh, president's council for physical fitness and sports. He chaired that council uh, under Ronald Reagan. Reagan appointed him to that uh, post. And actually, it's another story. Uh, Reagan and uh, and George Allen had a a very strong friendship, and Allen also had a uh, friendship with Donald Trump at the time. He knew Trump with uh, through the USFL, and because Trump. First hosted meetings, uh, USFL meetings at Trump Tower, and then Trump came to own the um, New Jersey Generals in the USFL. So they came to know each other pretty well. And then in later years, when when Allen chaired the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Trump Trump endorsed Allen's bid to build a national fitness center in the Los Angeles area. Uh, Trump was a, a very big supporter of that. Well, and a developer in 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 uh, in in business too, right? So there's you know the, the quid pro quo there, I'm sure. But I will we won't go that digression uh, for too for too long. Let me just ask you this one last question though. So you mentioned the uh, the theory that uh, he George Allen had been or was probably being blackballed um, during those years that he was in the booth, uh, and I guess he was actively interested in. Uh, head coaching roles again. Um, why? How? Source? Uh, what do you? What's the speculation as to potentially why he wasn't being offered these jobs? One reason is that Allen wanted to not only coach, but he wanted control of, of the personnel, and that was an era in the NFL when you had more and more teams hiring true general managers. The Redskins being a perfect example, they hired Bobby Beathard. After the 78, I'm sorry, after the 77 season, when Allen left, they hired him. Edward Bennett Williams hired a general manager in Bethard and Allen's successor in Jack Pardee. So you had that split. You had more and more teams hiring general managers, having separate duties from the head coach. Allen wanted both of those responsibilities. Another reason is that just Allen's previous um, antagonistic relationships with, with Dan Reeves and, and Edward Bennett Williams. Uh, uh, owners didn't really want to put up with that. They just, they thought Allen was was too much, you know, too difficult to to control. Um, he was too much of a cancer, and they they just didn't want uh, they didn't want to deal with that as George Allen as their as their head coach. Um, uh, so 
Uh, that's another reason right there. And also, Alan made these these really these vitriolic comments about Edward Bennett Williams when Williams made the decision to part ways with him in uh, January of 1978. Alan called him a uh, quote a, a cold blooded fish. Uh, he called him a. Uh, uh, there, there were just other really, really nasty remarks that Alan made. So, I mean, the owners knew about all that stuff. They they knew that George Allen was a difficult guy to deal with, and uh, they they just didn't want him. They didn't want him back. They didn't want to. Uh, they they didn't want that type of responsibility, that type of burden. So, for those those three major reasons, I would say uh, that is why Allen was never hired again in the NFL. It's just very interesting. I mean, you mentioned. I mean, it, it's 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 some dichotomy here that that he's, you know, he's he's got such the, this this talent, this uh, intensity, this uh, commitment, uh, this uh, fastidiousness, I guess, uh, 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 to to the sport, to the to the game, to the X's and O's. Yet also, you know, never sort of won that championship. Uh, butted heads with with, with management. Uh, you know, had. Uh, had his issues with uh, with players and, and and various temperament and stuff. So it's it's an interesting sort of uh, mix of uh, of uh, of pluses and minuses, so to speak. Yet, um, you know, the ultimate um, uh, honor, uh, albeit uh, posthumously, uh, being inducted to the into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Right. So, despite maybe some statistical. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, lightness, so to speak. And this clearly he was a figure, a force, uh, that, uh, made a dent into the ferment of, uh, of this sport, uh, known as football. Oh, absolutely. He was a pioneer in the game for the very reasons uh, I mentioned earlier, special teams, a defense. I really didn't go too in depth with defense, but, uh, he initiated the, the nickel and dime defenses, the five defensive backs, the six defensive backs, uh, he had these really creative blitz packages. So he was a defensive genius for that reason, for special teams, for his uh, winning, his uh, winning seasons, his winning percentage, all those reasons. He definitely deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, despite never winning a championship. And also one of the this this is uh, quite a story. Len Shapiro, the former uh, sports reporter for The Washington Post, he was actually the. Redskins beat reporter in the 70s when Allen coached there. He, he uh, started that job late in the 72 season and stayed on it uh, through Allen's term. He was the main proponent of Allen getting into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Shapiro was on the Hall of Fame selection committee. Allen never got on through the regular voting process. His name came up a few times. And I think one of the major reasons was his, um, his playoff record. It, it was just really abysmal. He had like a two in... Um, was it a two and seven playoff record? Uh, so that Shapiro told me that was a major reason that he he never really got serious consideration through the through the regular voting process. But when he became eligible through the seniors committee, that's when he was really taken seriously. And and Shapiro made the push. He Shapiro lobbied for him. He made a speech before the um, the other members of the, the selection committee. And sure enough, uh, Allen was selected. Now there was kind of a a confluence of events too, not only Shapiro making that push, but NFL Films released a documentary in, in 2001, uh, the George Allen story, uh, Winning is Living, Losing is Dying. That that came out in 2001, around the same time. And a number of people spoke in there, Shapiro being one, 
David Israel, another reporter who covered uh, Allen for the Washington Star. Um, uh, Krikorian was also part of that. Uh, Allen's family spoke and, and they all they all explained that this guy was eccentric. He was quirky. He was uh, he was his own guy. <laughs> and even, I remember Israel even saying he wasn't even like the, you know, some of the other you know, coaches, the um, uh, like Shula and uh, Chuck Knoll and even even Landry at that time. Um, in terms of, of his looks, I mean, those, those guys, as Israel said, uh, those guys looked like they were descendants of coal miners with those really tough and, you know, uh, really uh, strong looking faces and bodies and everything. Former football players, uh, all three of them of, who I mentioned had played uh, professional football. Uh, Alan wasn't that. He was this uh, this guy. He, you know, on the sidelines, he would flap his arms. He would uh, uh, pull on the, the bill of his cap. He would uh, um, he, just he would he would do these these really quirky had these really quirky movements on the sidelines that he was just different than those other guys. So, and that was explained in the documentary. Um, so, but basically, basically that documentary made a strong case for him to be in the hall of fame as well. And certainly the induction came in 2002. All right. That was uh meaty. And uh, in-depth, for sure. And um, I must tell you, though, despite uh, the amount of time we spent uh, in this conversation going deep on the life and times of George Allen, I will tell you there is much, much more uh, to learn, uh, courtesy of this book written by said Mr. Richmond. And it is, again, called George Allen, A Football Life. It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, run, don't walk to get yourself a copy. And of course, the easiest and most beneficial way, at least to us, that you can get this book is by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. All you need to do is search up our episode numbered 324, our conversation just had with Mike Richmond, and you will find a convenient link to the book. You will be whisked away via that link to Amazon to get it in either hardcover or Kindle form. And by doing so, you will give us a few referral uh, pennies or nickels or dimes of love. We appreciate that. That helps keep our lights on. And um, you will get the book probably as fast as humanly possible. We appreciate you uh, purchasing or at least considering purchasing said book that way. And uh, while you're online, why not uh, make sure that you bookmark our site at goodseatstillavailable.com. That's where we keep all of our episodes. And uh, if you haven't subscribed or follow us on your favorite podcast feed, by all means, you should stop what you're doing right now and do so. So it's the best way to make sure that you don't miss a moment of the various episodes that we have coming your way in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, while you're uh, certainly uh, doing your digital due diligence, make sure that you're following us on our various socials. Uh, we're probably the most active on X, formerly known as Twitter. You'll find us there at Good Seats Still. You will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on threads at Good Seats Still Available as well. While you're doing the social thing, follow Mike. Why don't you? He's at MSR underscore journalist at MSR underscore journalist on Twitter slash X. Uh, you can also follow or check out his website at Mike Richmond. That's R I C H 
MikeRichmanJournalist.com. And by the way, if you decide that you don't want to go through Amazon to get the book, you can reach out and purchase the book directly from Mike on his website and get a, a, a signed copy from uh, from the author as well. So either way, you'll be uh, in, in good stead. Uh, just get the book. Why don't you? Um, our thanks, of course. Uh, what, what else? I, I was, I was going to say thanks to, to our pal uh, Jerry uh, Payne, uh, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, of course, each and every week. But you know, I also need, neglected to tell you that um, you should also send us some email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. I'm a little out of order this week. I'm a little out of sorts. What can I tell you? Um, but I do appreciate your listening uh, and uh, more fun and excitement to come for you in the weeks ahead. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, we enjoy putting it together for you. And until next week, I, I wish you uh, safety and health and happiness. And uh, until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.